Welcome to the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. I'm Coach Jonathan Lee, and we are here in Kona again uh, with another special episode with our head coach, Chad Timmerman. Hey, everybody. Nate Pearson. Hello. And two special guests, but they'll sound like one, probably. Uh, two <laughs> special guests, uh, John and Chris Thornham from Flow Cycling. What's up, guys? Hey, man. How you doing? We're doing great. Thanks. Sweet. I think you guys just answered your own question. That's amazing. <laughs> so for those that don't know, they're twins. Um, and Flow Cycling. They uh, really, how long ago did you guys get started? Uh, we started designing and thinking probably in 2009, and we first started selling in 2012, February 2012. And what do you guys so, do? And what they're selling are wheels, right? Yep. So we design and manufacture carbon fiber cycling wheels for bicycles. Yep. And uh, they're, it's really, we wanted to have you guys on here because recently you put out uh, basically a, a case study, a numerous case studies where you really went in depth with CFD and you really went in depth with design on your on your newest uh, batch of wheels or newest design, newest model. And you guys went, you like deep dive and all of it. We geeked out on it. We loved it. <laughs> and we think that we can learn a lot about aerodynamics, wheels, tire pressure, how the two interface, bunch of Rolling stuff. Resistance. Yeah, yep. all that stuff. So that's what we want to dig into today. Um, and hopefully what we can grab from all this is different things we can do, even if you don't have, or, for example, a set of flow wheels, um, but uh, different things that make a certain wheel set good or make them bad, and different things that you can do to set up your wheels yep. with tire pressure or which tires you pick or anything, or which de depths you pick, all that stuff. So then people can make actionable takeaways and make them faster. Yep. So cool. Um, let's get right into things, I guess, with... You mostly make road and triathlon, and that's your market. That's our primary market for now, yeah. We have some other stuff that we're working on, but today you can buy road and tri stuff. And the other stuff, tricycles? Tricycles. tricycles. Yes. Yeah. So I say this a lot, but I don't want to make this a, a flow commercial. Mm -hmm. But one thing that's cool about you guys are you're only direct to users, so you get like direct to customers. Yep. So in the cycling industry, if you don't know, that a lot of times people manufacture will sell something, a distributor will get it. They will mark it up. Like, how much does that mark up a distributor? Typically, it's like 40-ish percent each time it changes hands. Yeah, so, so distributor builds something, and it goes to, or sorry, the manufacturer builds something, goes to distributor, 40% increase, and a bike shop, another 40% increase. So it's usually about, it could be a little more than twice the cost. I know that's because it's 40% in increasing on an extra 40. So about twice the cost from what it, it costs. But you guys don't do that. If you look at like a standard uh, retail product, the one of the benchmarks is 5X on manufacturing cost is your MSRP. So if you see something that's $3,000, costs about $600 to make. Mm. Uh, that stings. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so our model going yeah. consumer direct cuts out two to three of those lines of markup mm -hmm. and you get it to the customer for typically half or a third of the price of what most other people are paying. And bike shops, we Interbike, this is people kind of hate don't like this approach? No, it's like no. The internet. <laughs> not at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The evil internet. Uh, the Canyon's doing this. Specialized has said they will not sell online, right? They said Which only they, bike shops. They, so they just change made it? a bit. They just signed Art Cyclery. That's uh, their uh, wholesaler from Central California. First ones to sell specialized stuff online. It just happened this week. And it was funny, too, because they, they made noise about it, but they made noise very covertly. I think that Specialized doesn't want them to start advertising that, but first one that's still through the bike draw. shop though it's not direct from specialized um the orders go direct through specialized but the bike shop gets the money uh, that's, yep. that's mm -hmm. all trek's doing it too now right yep. as you exactly can, you destination can, credit yeah yeah yep which is like this funny kind of i guess the bike shop does build it but now they ship bikes so complete like you just need handlebars on and yeah, you're it's good pretty to go. simple like there are very few i mean the venge vias yeah. is an example of a bike that requires like a lot of on 
uh, you know, hands-on setup, but that's really it. I'm scared for the, the bike shop. I, I think if I own a bike, okay, side note. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're already deviating. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. but if I own a bike shop, what I would do is I probably wouldn't sell bikes. I would sell all the other stuff, stock that, um, because a lot of those times you need those quickly. Then I would have a scheduling system for um, bike maintenance and have that be like a key differentiator is say, yep. I'm going to bring my bike in at 1 p.m. and I'm going to have an hour's worth of time and you're going to fix it right then. Because when I go to a bike shop, it's so annoying. I drop it off on Friday and they're like, you know, you get this back next Tuesday. And, I'm yeah, like, and you know, never know until you show up. Right. Yeah. They should just be appointments. And I try to make my money just on the mechanical side of it. And, you know, there's nothing against bike shops, you know, because I think they still serve a great purpose. But I think that the industry is changing whether they like it or not. And I yes. think that the bike shops that are going to be successful in the future are the ones who take note of the change and adapt to it. I mean, that's the big thing that we see. You yep. get resistance from bike shops in some cases where, I mean, we ship tens of thousands of wheels. So if, if you get... You need service in Texas, and there's a bike shop who's great. Bike shops make big margins on service work. If you're a jerk and you say our product sucks just because we sell online, I don't send my people in Texas, my customers in Texas to you. But if you're a great, friendly guy and you want to help support the community, I can send a lot yeah. of people in Texas. To That's somebody. key. The other yeah. part is is customer support and having really good knowledge. Because some bike shop owners. It's it's such a mix. Some of them are so great, and everyone knows their son. And other ones, there's like a, a really young kid who doesn't know much, mm -hmm. like doing the sales. Yep. And I can't talk to them or ask them about stuff or answer questions. Oh, yeah, it's frustrating. Right? Yeah. And the other thing that's happening too is, I mean, five years ago when we started this, we were one of the first consumer direct companies that kind of was was pushing in that direction. And at the time, there was a lot of unknowns. And today, there's a lot of things that are changing. You look at companies like Velofix who mm -hmm. has you they know, drive the van around. they drive yeah. the van around yeah. and they have a guy that will come to your house and can do pretty much anything you can think of they're extremely educated they're very smart they know exactly what they're doing i mean you can buy a bike from them and show up and it's an appointment you know and i'm not and those are the things that we're starting to see changes that are coming out that are just very beneficial not only for the consumer but but for the for the for the businesses yeah. themselves as well, so it's adapting. So let's go into wheels now. Yep, <laughs> <laughs> something we know a lot um, more about. <laughs> one of the things that you guys did is, and, and this is kind of diving deep right away, but pairing tires with wheels, and when you do that, it's aerodynamics and rolling resistance. So you guys want to talk about like why is that important? Your wheel, your tire choice with the wheels, and how those all play together. Yeah. Great question. Um, Thank you. Really? Yeah, it was. <laughs> cool. So if you look, it, it kind of we have to backtrack just a little bit because if you look at how wheels have sort of traditionally been designed, there's a very it's been a very manual process, and and what I mean by that is there's no equation to solve for something that's fast aerodynamically. It's just you test it in a wind tunnel and you see what it does. So the, the biggest thing that we recognized was that if we really wanted to solve or try and find something that was fast, we had to set up a, a, a set of data points before we even got there. Mm -hmm. So wheels were, have traditionally been designed where you'll, you'll draft something in, in CFD, you test it. Which what CFD, CFD is? is yeah. CFD is uh, Computational Fluid Dynamics. It's a software. It's basically like a wind tunnel on a computer. So it allows you to do prototyping and a number of different things before you set foot in a wind tunnel because wind tunnels are super expensive. Mm -hmm. um, you're looking at anywhere from probably six to $900 an hour for a low-speed wind tunnel. And just to look at one wheel, I mean, you're looking at 15 to 20 minutes. So 
and you look at a number of different things when you're there. So it's no problem to spend two days there, and it adds up super quick. Mm. Um, plus, they're in just very remote locations, so getting there is also a, is also <laughs> yeah. an issue. So um, going back to CFD, what it's somebody told me once they're like, oh, CFD, you know, that's they kind of like discredit it. But can you guys describe what other industries use CFD? Oh, oh CFD is used by. I mean, it's used NASA. by NASA. I was going to say NASA. You can't fit a space F1. shuttle F one in. Yeah, oh. a wind tunnel. No, yeah, like, I, so, I remember, and hopefully this isn't a big engineering yeah. and science. Yeah, like two years ago, um, F1 went underwent a huge amount of regulation changes, and their cars started coming out, and they had so many crazy. The, the cars went from something that was very normal looking for an F1 yep. car, and they started having fairings. They had open noses. They had all these oh. strange things going on yep. with them, and it was cool to see. Every single team took a different approach. It's usually the cars were all exactly the same before. Then these new rules brought about a total, and every team brought a, you know, had exactly. a different approach. And what they ended up saying was that it was all because they spent a huge amount of time in the wind tunnel, each team, yep. and running through CFD beforehand with all that exactly. stuff. They used it heavily. People yeah. use the wind tunnel to kind of validate CFD, right? Yeah, yeah. Yes. we do yep. now. And that's yeah. we were sort of the five years ago, one of the main reasons we did it was because we just didn't have the money. So we used software because. It was kind of one of these things, and it became this thing that we did where we, we recognized the benefits of CFD. So that our first wheels were designed in 2011. Fast forward to 2015 as we're designing the new product line. And getting back to your, your question here about um, pairing things, the big thing that we recognized is if we wanted to try and find something that was fast, we had a lot of catch-up to do. So instead of manually drafting these shapes or making physical prototypes and just hoping they were fast, um, the first thing we wanted to understand was what actually happens to a cyclist on the road. So we built a computer that mounts to the front of a bicycle and it collects a yaw angle, which a yaw angle is basically the direction that the wind hits you. So if the wind's hitting you like directly in your face, that would be zero. And if it were hitting you in your like your right or left ear, that would be 90 degrees either to your left or right. So we rode this sensor um, and it also collects relative velocity. So it's basically the, the speed that the wind hits you. So if you're riding down the road, at 10 miles an hour and you have a 10 mile an hour headwind, the two of those add up, you get 20 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. If you're riding down the road and you have a 10 mile, or 10 mile an hour tailwind and you're going 10 miles an hour, you're basically doing nothing. So that relative velocity becomes important because it, we associate that with that yaw angle. Um, once we gather all that information, we rode it over four Ironman courses. Uh, we rode it through descents, climbing, drafting, um, on the coast, in wooded areas, just to see what actually happens. It was 110,000 data points. And we then took that and we made CFD models, and we, uh, CAD models. And to get the most accurate CAD models we could, we used the best tire that we knew at the time, which was a Continental GP 4000 S2. has a really good... That's what I'm running. Yeah, that's yeah. what we talk Her about. Tire. It, it's, yeah, it's, it's the one to go to. It's a great <laughs> yeah. tire aerodynamically. They've done something with that tire that is just unbelievable. Um, and then the rolling resistance is really good. So when you do anything aerodynamically, there are a million variables. And one of the things we do when we go to a wind tunnel or anything we do with CFD, we're very open about how we test what the protocol is. Because... You can change from one tire to another, and you can see drastically different results. So one of the things you have to do when you are designing a product is you have to say, okay, this is my baseline, this is what we're going to use, and then we will design around that. So to your question, because we knew that the GP4000 S2 was the best tire, we fit it 
into our CAD models and into the optimi- so into the models in CFD because we knew it was going to give us an optimal result. So what makes it a good tire? You mentioned that like they've done something incredible. What why is it what makes a good tire or makes a tire more efficient or aerodynamic? Well, we're talking efficient? about just aerodynamics and rolling resistance. Right yeah, yeah, yeah. So not puncture protection or something or traction. Yeah. There, there's really I think there's a few things. It's it's the overall shape of the tire so the profiles you know, they're, they're, sorry, the tire's profile. Because they're not just all round. No, no, right? no. Some of them are taller. Some of them are wider. Some of them are, you know, there's a bunch of varieties, pointier. Um, my belief is it's, it's a combination of that and how that interfaces with the wheel width itself and the tread on the tire. Hmm. Um, we've seen some pretty specific tread patterns that seem to create an aero advantage. Um, what, I've, what tread pattern? Patterns. So the GP4000S tread pattern um, seems to do something magic. And if you look at uh, Felt has a tire that they designed that has a similar pattern. It's but like they, the little lines on the side, right? Yeah, it kind of looks like a like a wave almost. Yeah. And, and if you look at Felt's tire, uh, I talked to Jim Felt uh, a year or two ago when he was sorry designing his tire. And they modeled theirs off of the leading edge of the felt, I want to say DA at the time. So there's a similarity between their frame shapes and what they've studied. Mm-hmm. They use the same CFD software that we use. And they modeled their, their tire tread pattern based on that. Interesting. Now, this tire, though, wouldn't be the fastest on every wheel, right? Because what you see a lot no. of times in magazines or someone will test or a competitor, they'll test their tire, the, the best tire for their on wheel, and then you go against somebody else and it's not the optimal tire for that, and it won't perform as well, right? Right, so the, the one thing that we did notice was that most manufacturers have the most success with the Continental GP4000S2. Really? Yeah, yeah, the Continental tire, if you, we just did a massive tire study at A2, there was 20 tires that we tested, and I think the top, of the top five, right here. four of them are Continental. Um, they have really good tires. A lot of times what you'll see with manufacturers, and this is nothing against the manufacturers, but they'll have tire wheel combinations. Mm-hmm. So if they're selling a tire, tire wheel combination, then it's beneficial for them. They can do a whole bunch of things design-wise, and a lot of times they won't publish the results with other tires. Sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. So what we've generally seen is that no matter what you test, I mean, we have a, a baseline wheel that we test, which is a Mavic Open Pro with you know 32 spokes it's it's an arrow pig i mean that's the point <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. um yeah. <laughs> it really trends very similarly to all of our other wheels and all of our other wheels because they're all different i mean if you look at the external dimensions of our flow 60 versus our flow 90 flow 45 they're different um which you're talking about the width and the shape th- yeah of the outside of the rim if okay. you look at different tires on those there is one tire that wins on all of them and it's typically the the continental tires <laughs> how much extra drag Will you guys, if like, what's the worst tire uh-huh. on yeah. yours, and how much extra drag would that have on your, uh, like, you know, sure. on your wheels? So the, the we learned this the hard way. Um, the first time we were brand new wheel company, we went to the wind tunnel. We took four tires, and we did not take the Continental GP four thousand S two. We took a Vittoria Open Course CX. Uh, open Course CX, which we is took, known to be pretty. That's like a common, pick. but it's a great rolling tire. It feels uh-huh. good. People love Vittorias for that reason. And we took um, a Bond, maybe a Bond Traeger, a Michelin tire. We took a handful, four, 
and we put the Vittoria tire in, and then we put in the Michelin tire. And at that time, I think there was close to 100 grams of drag difference between those two tires. Wow. wow. So if you look now at what we've done with further tire studies on top of that, I'm guessing, and I don't know it's an exact number, but it's probably over 200 grams of drag so, just based on your tire. Can you cal- translate that into watts? On uh, a certain time on a 40K TZ? It's, it's so... It's hard to do. There's I know. kind of a rule. If, if you're pedaling at 250 watts, I think it is. It's uh, five watts is five seconds. Uh, 50 grams. So the way we've always done grams, it. Yeah. yeah, 50 grams. 50 grams is five seconds. One of the things that we've kind of done, and there's a number of different ways to do this, but 100 grams is equivalent to 40 seconds over uh, 40K. 40K, which so, is the benchmark. Which is kind of a benchmark. Um, and there are other ways to calculate it, but that's a kind of an easy one to remember. So if you're looking at 200 grams, uh, you know, over a 40K, you're looking at 80 seconds. That's that's and a lot. I like to think of it in watts, so 20 watts in yeah, that case. Yeah, huge. Yeah, 20, Massive. everyone on you, you Trainer Road. think of it at watts? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Company Trainer Road, don't know anything about watts, right? If, yeah. Yeah. if you think about that, like, I know for, Someone's for me. Someone's on that tire, right? On a, It's Michelin Pro Race 2? Oh. Is that what it was? For example, like, four. Andy Pro Race 4, I used to always be on that tire. Yeah, me too. Yep. Oh, and I lost some races by seven seconds, like half Ironmans. Yeah, like Andy Potts last <laughs> no. year, as an example. Andy Potts rode Continental Gator Skin tires. Yeah, no. and, and yeah, Slow Twitch at, is still pissed. If you look that. at yeah, they yes, but if you look at the numbers, keep going. If you look at the numbers, I think we equated it to him missing, losing. It's right here, close to seven to eight minutes or something oh. because of those tires. He My lost goodness. the race, I think, by four minutes. So. That small gear choice, people will say, oh, well, the Continental Gator Skin has better flat protection. So he was avoiding a finish, risk. Yeah. But, I mean, he's in it to win it. The GP4000S2 has great flat yeah. protection. It's super fast. And you can you can put some, sorry, some sealant in there. I mean, yeah. I've throw, in to, some, um, throw in some stands or some orange seal. Yeah. But if it's got a removable core, your tube, you can put it a little bit in there and you're going to have a tube that should help. It'll and dry it, out of it. And that doesn't but. change the rolling resistance or anything else substantially? Uh, you, you're going to add some weight, but mm-hmm. you're not going to have a huge difference. I mean, not as not as drastic of difference as saying, well, a I got to go gator skin oh, because yeah. I might get a flat, okay. right? Yeah. So the rolling resistance part of it, because that's, that's two, that's the two combinations of it. What is the difference in rolling resistance between like a, a fast tire, like the Continental, and a slow tire? And you guys are referring to your site. Where can we, if someone wants to see this yeah. data, where do they go? So on our on our blog, there's three there's a three part tire study, um, and it's there's tags on the side. You can go into aerodynamics, and it's it's tagged under one of those. But, but there's graphs, all of these twenty different tires that we we've worked with. Um, so we did all of the roller resistance testing with a guy named Tom Anholt, who has a blog, uh, Blather About Bikes. He's yeah. a super, Very well-respected. Yeah, yes. yeah, like this dude is a super smart engineer. I, I call him sometimes and ask him questions, and I probably ask him more questions because he explains things in a way that I'm like, I'm not sure I quite understand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we're engineers, and we're he's, like, Tom, you're way over our head. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's, very, he's very good at explaining things. It's just he's super intelligent, so sometimes he has to slow it down. Dumb it down yeah, for us. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, so his, his work is incredibly good. Um, and just a, a quick side note on rolling resistance, because you were asking about sealant and certain things like that. So a, a butyl tube is with a tire is your worst case. A latex tube with a tire is your next best, and tubeless destroys is the best. Is, is the best. Yeah, because um, like how much difference? 
between the between so each bet- step. Between, uh, I can give you numbers on the first two. So from butyl to latex, you save three to four watts per tire. Yes, that's so massive. That's what I, I, as a triathlete, I always try to get roadies. I'm like, you, you know, you're doing an hour long road race. Why aren't you on latex? And they're like, oh, it loses too much air. No, like, yeah, like you're you're. Are, you think about eight watts or something like your. Are latex tubes more sensitive to heat? Yes, latex tubes are are notorious for just being incredibly difficult to work with. Like, if there's a small hole, they'll find it. Like, mm-hmm. they'll they'll poke up the side. They're they're yeah. just they're tough to work with. Um, they are more sensitive to heat as well. There's, so, and that that means that the the temperature or pressure change will happen, right? You have pressure change. We've actually there's another study on our blog that discusses the change in pressure in your tires as temperature changes and as elevation changes we studied that as well so there's it's small it's minor um the one of the big issues you can run into with latex is that if it heats up too much with braking that you can they can blow they can rupture they they're not as robust as a butyl tube right Mm -hmm. um so right now some of the best stuff you can use is latex because the the rolling resistance on a lot of the current tubeless tires just has not caught up with the best rolling resistance tires that are yeah, that that's are the, tubeless that's the thing. tires. There's yeah. not a whole lot of options, and you look at tubeless tires. Yeah. This, this, we, in fact, we just, we just switched looked, over, we just over yeah. on our cyclocross bikes. Um, we brought them down here, and I didn't bring mine because I couldn't get mine to seal. But you guys brought them down, and we were looking for um, we were looking for 28s at least the, on the width. We were looking for some tires. They're disc wheels, so it's going to be pretty simple. And we were really limited on what we could pick. Specialized mm-hmm. has a couple options. Schwalbe is what we ended up going yep. with the Schwalbe Pro One. Um, um, that was just good available. Resistance. Yeah, and it was um, available. <laughs> but there, yeah, and it was available. But there, there aren't many, and that's the thing. It's not that that tubeless is is worse performing. It's just there's less engineer R and D yep. for tubeless, yep. right? Yep. Okay. So getting back to your question about how many watts are you losing with rolling resistance? So the worst tire that we tested was the Continental or the Continental Gator Skin, which is what Andy Potts rode last year. Mm-hmm. So if you look at our best tire for rolling resistance alone, it was the Continental GP Supersonic. So that takes 12 watts to roll, 12.4 watts per tire to roll. If you compare that to the um, the Continental Gator Skin in 23 mils, that takes 22.3 watts to roll. Wow. wow. So you, he Ten. effectively lost 19.8 watts. You are an engineer. Over a four That's and exactly. a half hour. Yeah. 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 Right. Well, I did the math quick. <laughs> so he, he, let's round up. He lost 20 watts. Do you think he was, he was using latex tubes? Probably not. Probably not. So if he wasn't using latex tubes, he lost, let's give him another six watts. So he lost just on his tire selection. This is just for rolling resistance. So we haven't looked at the aero part of it. But if you look at just those numbers, he lost 26 watts for that entire race. By the way, we love you, Andy Potts. Yes. We're glad oh, that yeah. you're not using them. We're just trying to help you, buddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's that, see, that's the interesting thing. Now, I, I think what, that... Yeah, go ahead, Nate. Aerodynamics now on top of that. Yeah. Because the gator skin... We just talked about rolling resistance, but the Gator Skin though is also worse for aerodynamic. Well, it depends it on the wheel really he uses. Though. Tread I don't know, right? Which wheel does it's he use? It's actually a really good tire aerodynamically. Oh, it we, is. We we took it, and he and I sort of had a debate if we should even study um, <laughs> the Gator Skin. And I'm like, we have to study the Gator Skin. It's, it's like, a really common tire. It's a really common tire, and he's like, okay. So we put it in. It was kind of this joke. We looked at it. and We're like, huh. man, that's that's a pretty slick tire for the gator skin so it's it's actually aerodynamically it's not bad but when you when you stack it's really really poor rolling resistance on it just drops it right to the right. bottom when you in combine terms it. of overall yeah. performance yeah so and if the, the saying is that um rolling resistance can make up for a lot of aero sins so basically if you're 
if your arrow isn't that great with a tire, if it has really good rolling resistance, it can move a tire way up. So if you look at if you look at the combined effect of the aerodynamics and the rolling resistance, that tire loses. Uh, I'm, he's re- he's referencing the stone. I'm referencing right now. my phone. So it's uh, it's almost four minutes per tire that you're losing. So this is that number I was talking oh, about. Under, so, under an Iron over Man. an Ironman. So he's losing about seven and a half minutes. He lost seven and a half minutes using that tire on the race. Uh. There, there's something yell at pros tomorrow at the bike check-in. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> there's something Maybe quicker to stop, change your tires, and then keep yeah. going. Right? Yeah. 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 There's something else I think I should mention about rolling resistance because it's it's really new. Um, it's something that we're currently studying ourselves, and there's another guy who's sort of leading this. Two people. Um, Josh Portner is a guy that owns a company now called Silka. Uh, he was the head technical director for Zip for a number of years. Uh, after they were acquired by SRAM, he was there for a while, and then he went off and bought his own, own company called Silka, and he is super smart. Um, He's as smart as they get. Yeah, he is. Yeah. A great guy. And Silka's a pump company, so they have been looking a lot at tire pressure. Um, and how does tire pressure affect the ride, not only from a compliance standpoint? So they've done some really cool studies where changing your pressure in your tire you can actually get more compliance out of a bike than going from like a a uh, a race bike like a high mod race bike to like a, a roubaix so if you look at like the, the you're just way more squish in the tire so you can you can effectively get a lot of that one of the other things that they've they've also looked at is how does rolling resistance change as you change tire pressure yeah that's important this is this and this this is something that it's called they're they're using a term which Josh coined is impedance, which is actually a really interesting thing. So if you look at the guys that do the hour pursuit record, mm-hmm. and if you go to those tracks, those velodromes, the surface of that floor is almost perfect. There's like nothing wrong with it. It's it's so super smooth that it's not like a pitted surface that you would have on asphalt. Yeah. It's very, very flat, very... very it's yeah. very perfect. Like, there are guys that are down there, like, hand-sanding this thing. It's it's mm-hmm. super smooth. So what they'll do is, I think they run argon gas in those. They run them up to, like, they're like silk-sewn tires. 300 PSI. 300 PSI. Because if you look at a theoretical uh, tire pressure versus CRR... What CRR hap- meaning... CRR is rolling resistance. Yep. Um, the higher your tire pressure the lower your CRR gets. So what this all started with Tom Anhalt a few years ago. He, this is a guy from Blather about bikes who's super, super smart. Um, he kind of came up with this idea. He was doing some, some testing uh, on the road, and he noticed that he was getting some really odd numbers with some certain things. And as he started looking at rolling resistance, he noticed that there is a basically a, a point of no return so the tire pressure as you increase it follows the theoretical curve until to a point and then it spikes straight up your crr your rolling resistance numbers go through the roof if you increase that rolling that pressure past that point. past that point of no return and it's surprisingly low like it's and a lot of them it can be some of it's well below 120 psi which is which, which is, was for a long time kind of the norm. It's oh kind of the norm. I always did it for 120. Like yeah. when I was traveling yeah. every yeah. race, 120, 120, 120. Yep. Yeah. Then I read that and I was like, I've been 
screwing my screwing hand. And, and it's, it's and the handling's worse too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, so, something interesting that you brought up there. So like a velodrome is not a surface that the majority of us ride on, yeah. right? And, right. And, very, and even if you do ride a velodrome, you, chances are you don't just exclusively ride track. Now in that case, it's a perfectly smooth surface. So you run, so they run a lot of pressure because that tire isn't rolling over bumps or deforming into that. Now, right. but it seems like we're really starting to just figure out the fact that if that ground is uneven, which asphalt's totally it uneven, yeah. constantly you're going over small bumps and everything else, that it actually may be faster. To, the reason that lower pressure might be faster is is that because the tire is able to deform over that without transferring your forward momentum into upper momentum? Yes. 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 Okay. So basically, if, yeah. <laughs> he already explained it. I don't have to say anything. It's just my own no. podcast. Yeah, no. But if you, if you look at, if you take the road and you look at those little tiny bumps in the asphalt as mountains, right. right? You have to go up and down every mountain. So if you have this really stiff, you know, tire that's super over high, overinflated, you're kind of bouncing up and down over those little mountains, and all of that up mm. and down motion takes energy. If you lower your tire pressure enough, or to the right point, you can kind of smooth out all those little peaks and valleys, and it rolls smoother without all the up and down deformation. How do we know what the right tire pressure is? We are still studying that. So okay. there are general guidelines that you can look at, and there's other, there's, so there's two parts of tire pressure that we're studying right now. We've studied one of them, kind of, we could probably do it more. The first part is aerodynamically. How does your tire pressure affect your aerodynamics? Which would affect the profile of the tire. Yes. yes. So okay. you think, well, what would it matter? Well, if you go from 90 PSI to 95 PSI, you change the profile of your tire. You go up again, it changes. So we studied pressures the last time we were in the tunnel. And for the tires that we tested, 95 PSI was the optimal on our wheels. Mm -hmm. If you go up to 105 PSI, it can, you can be losing time again. Now you also have to look at your rolling resistance and how much you weigh. So we're currently looking at a way to study tire pressure more individually. So we can say if you weigh 190 pounds or you compare yourself to a guy who weighs 140 pounds, what tire pressure should you be running? And we're doing some stuff with, with Silka uh, in the near future. And we're actually looking at now, right now, um, mounting strain gauges to the inside of tires Whoa. So that That's we next can, level. yeah, so that we can measure something known as casing tension. So your mm -hmm. casing tension is how much tension is basically in the the tire itself as you inflate it. So casing tension could be a better way to measure pressure because if the casing tensions match on tires, effectively they're the same stiffness. So we're doing a lot of work right now mm -hmm. on that, and it's. It's kind of, no one's done it, so it's, we don't have an exact science for it yet, but if we study it the right way and we get things done, we'll have a much better way to um, recommend specific pressures based on your weight. So that's, so that's something interesting because uh, you'll see a lot of people air up their front tire less than their rear tire. Right. And the, the reason is that, you know, your weight is shifted more onto that back tire when yep. you're riding. So is that, and that's basically what they're going for is casing tension with that to kind of even uh, that out. Maybe the, it, yeah. there's a, there's a, the reality is, is right now we don't really know. Hmm. So, and, and that's why if you look at, and the question is, is, well, why, who cares? We've kind of, and this, I'm not saying that there are no more aerodynamic gains, but if you look at the gains that we've gained from our new design, with we haven't really talked about how we designed the new product, which we yeah, won't yeah, a bit, yeah, but yeah, yeah. Um, we've kind of solved most of the aerodynamic puzzle. So the gains that we will get from a next generation of aerodynamic improvements, maybe 2%, which we would find. The rolling resistance, internal rim width, um, 
casing tension stuff, it's wide open. And there are so many benefits that can come from that. Um, so looking at a, a combination of wheel and tire interaction and how that happens, that we're focusing all of our R&D and research into that area because the gains there are just, they're, they're endless, we think, at this point. I've Another part of it is uh, what your tire width is, right? Because yeah. that also messes, I mean, changes the pressure. Yeah. So, and things are getting wider. Yeah, so yeah. if you look at, so there's this very old standard. It's called the ETRTO, which is the European Tire and Rim Tolerance Rim Association. Tire, yeah. I don't know. Association is not with an O. Organization. There it is. So they have this this guideline, which a lot of wheel manufacturers look at, and it was done so long ago that at the time, the standard internal rim width for a road wheel was like 13 millimeters. Wow. So That's narrow. It's Because most are, what, 20... One, Internal, well, it depends. The widest oh, you'll see awesome. today are, are 20, around the 20-ish, 21-ish okay. range. But a lot of the stuff that we're designing now, it ranges, and it depends on the wheel, because it depends on your external shape and, and width, is around around the 17 to about 20 mil internal rim width. Wow. So what happens is is these tires and, and the way that these organizations have, have set these up is, and they'll say, hey, this is a 23 mil tire, which basically means the width of your tire. But if you mount that on something that's not a 13 mil internal rim width, well, it's going to be wider. So you can effectively have a 23 mil tire that measures 28 mils on certain things. So that's the common question that we get is, well, hey, do 25 mil tires fit on your wheels? Yeah, they do. They fit wonderful. But you have to make sure they actually fit your frame. Because a lot of frames, and this is one of the big issues with being a wheel designer, is you are limited to the frame that you put the wheel in. We right. could do a whole bunch of cool, crazy stuff if we had, like, you know, six inches around every, every wheel. <laughs> we could just do some really cool yeah. stuff. Fat bikes. Yeah, yeah exactly, right? So um, it's it becomes important. But, yes, it does change the width of your tire for sure. And each tire, 23 mil, like, from one company to the next to the next, they're taller, they're wider, they've got totally different shapes. Mm-hmm. Nothing is the same. So what I'm doing right now is, and I hope you guys are going to say this is good, but on my 23 mil um, Continental... 4000 S GP GP 4000 S. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a long name. Yeah. Um, I'm running 95 psi. Yep. Yep. So aerodynamically, we found that to be the fastest, 95 psi. Now, for your weight, is that optimal for rolling resistance? Right now, we don't know, but we know you're getting the most aero benefit. Okay. That you and get. I think I, I think I saw Tom Anault. This is for maybe a little bit lighter guy. I'm close. He said a 170. Um, that was also good. It was like right in that it v- is. that area so of being really good. We have a tire pressure guide on our site, and it you know it basically it gives you some guidelines right now. Mm-hmm. Is it perfect yet? No, but you know mo- the the number one thing we try to prove with that is 120 psi is typically not where you're going to be yeah. because people just it's, it was this standard forever, and it's like oh the sidewall says 120, so I go to 120, and that's yep. the best, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The answer is no. And here's the other thing you have to think about: if you think about what we were saying with this new stuff that we're studying, which is impedance, and that you know Josh Porton and those guys are, are looking at the 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 rolling resistance as you're in the lower psi range has a very sort of flat decreasing shape, but as soon as you hit that point of no return, he's talking about the curve, the curve, yeah, yeah. yeah. that it's almost like straight up. So you are much better to be underinflated 
slightly than to be over than to be overinflated. Handling's better, which yeah. we haven't yeah. even got to yet. That's one thing that I wanted to touch on when you're talking about widths. So, um, as, as people know on this podcast, I, I coach high school mountain bikers, and this kid just got a new bike. He's super stoked, and his brother is like a downhill bro, right? Yeah, like big time bro. <laughs> so his brother's like, "Don't be an XC weenie," because he got an XC bike, which is a you know light travel bike, and like XC's it's, cool. Yeah, it's cool. <laughs> he's he's missing the boat, but he was like, "You need to get gnarly tires." So he has two point six inch width tires. Yep. So that's super wide for those that don't know. Yeah. That's nearly plus size. You're you're right on the edge, right? His and if that guy just catches a breath of wind to the side, his tires rub on his frame. It's just really bad. <laughs> but the worst part is he's using it's a slightly older bike. The rim width is super narrow. Yeah. So he's got these really wide tires on, and they're just bulging out of those rims. And essentially, what he's got is he's got a really domed tire, right? Like yep. it's kind of like tall, and it's got it's pointed on the top. Yep. So even though he thinks that he's getting great traction because he has this super wide tire, he's actually not getting a solid footprint. That actual contact patch is is pretty slow or yep. pretty small, which. You want to ride that balance for handling and obviously efficiency. Yep. You don't want to have too big of a contact patch, but at the same time, you have to have some. Now, with a wider tire, technically, if you took one tire, wider rim, I should say, if yep. you had yep. the same tire and go to a wider rim, that should broaden out and make the tire less pointy. Is that better for handling or resistance? Anything so else it's like typically you'll see wider tires have better rolling resistance. Okay. Okay. So if you look at force and pressure. If you have a wider wheel, that widens the tire. Mm -hmm. So what happens, your contact patch is a combination, if you look at force equals pressure over area, right? Mm -hmm. So as you press down on a, if you go to skinny, skinny wheel and you inflate a tire and you press down on it. If you cover it in ink and make a, uh, a mark Stamp. on the contact patch, which we, we did, did in a blog article. <laughs> so if you, if you make an ink mark of what the contact patch is on a skinny wheel, it makes a long and skinny contact patch, mm -hmm. okay? So science says that the, co the area of that contact patch should remain the same if the pressure is the same. Okay. Okay, so if you widen your wheel you widen the tire and you make a contact patch again with ink. What happens is the contact patch gets wider, but because the area has to stay the same, it also has to get shorter. Mm -hmm. So when you have rolling resistance basically is the energy required to overcome the deformation of the tire and to actually move the tire forward. So if you look at a tire that is that has a or sorry, a wheel with a tire on it and it's on the ground with weight. There's the bottom of that is actually flat mm -hmm. because it's deformed on the pavement. So as you roll that tire forward, you have to basically roll through a flat section mm -hmm. and that causes resistance because there's a moment that's created at the front of that contact patch. So the shorter that you can make that contact patch, the less moment that you get and it makes it easier to roll. Now that's a very nerdy explanation yeah. of how it happens. That was a great explanation. Well. But yeah, it, cold, yeah, yeah. That's, that's how it works. And uh, if, There's an article on our blog, if you look at it, we have all of the arrows and everything pointing to explain it, but that's why wider equals typically a lower rolling resistance. And a quick visual for that is like, if you think of a, a beach ball, they roll pr pretty well. But if you yeah. have like a cardboard box, it doesn't <laughs> roll so well, like a two by four. You, can't, you can like roll a two by four if you like pick it up but it doesn't, it's not easy. It's much more challenging. So the shorter that contact patch, 
you're getting closer to a beach ball as opposed to a, a box. Makes sense. So there's probably a lot of people listening to this going, I just want to ride my bike. Yeah. So, yeah. so <laughs> I hope you guys figure this out and you can just say, from your weight and your you know full wheel and your tire, do this. Yeah, and that, then they, they the save their 15 watts and they go ride. So yep. let's now move on to, to handling. Yeah. So handling... There's a few aspects. One is, especially here in Kona, is aerodynamics and the wind from the side and where the pressure is and how that works. Yeah. And two is the stiffness of the wheel, right? And how do, how does that play in? Yeah. Let's first talk about aerodynamics and like there's a people say you know some people say a disc wheel will push you around more. Yep. And some people, I think it's it's more the front wheel and having a really deep front wheel that's where it gets scary yep. for me so let's talk about that so this is what we talked about the other night so <laughs> we'll go with this so the, if you look at the two wheels on a bike you've got your front wheel and your back wheel now the main difference between the front wheel and the back wheel if you look at it from a mechanical standpoint is that the front wheel has a steering axis which is your, your handlebars mm-hmm. and the rear wheel is fixed in the frame okay so if you get hit with a crosswind the front wheel can actually turn in your hands and that's what gives you that scary feeling yeah, that you pucker. felt the pucker so you hit that that's what happens so and the deeper the front wheel there's a few components that come into it so when we study aerodynamics we look at one drag and then another component that's called yaw torque so yaw torque is how much torque or turning force is created by wind on a front wheel because a front wheel has more has two leading edges you have your tire and then if you go to the back half of the wheel, the wind is actually touching the inside diameter of the rim as well. What? Explain leading edge. Yeah, so a leading edge is basically what the wind sees. So mm-hmm. it sees the tire, and then it sees the inside of the back half of the wheel. The older design V-knot shaped wheels were super pointy and then super blunt with a tire. Mm-hmm. So those, if the wind hits a big blunt shape up front and then a super pointy shape on the inside, it, it affects them differently. So you may have a high force on the front and a low force on the back. So now you've got a high force on one half of a wheel and a low force on the back you half. pushed. And you get this twisting with your handlebars. Totally makes sense. Right? Huh. So when we study aerodynamics, we look at one, the, air, the drag, but we also look at yaw torque. So we try and lower the yaw torque as much as you can so that the force on the front of the wheel and the back of the wheel are as equal as we can get them. Hmm. So you still get moved by wind, but you don't get that jarring pucker pushed. feeling, right? Right. You don't get, you get pushed. Not twisted. So, twisted. So, if we look at stability, you, you get that, that's one component of stability, but you also have to look at your relationship of your front wheel and your back wheel. Okay, so people think deep is always bad, but because the rear wheel does not have a steering axis, it doesn't really affect your handling as much as a front yeah. wheel. That's something that Kona, like, discs are outlawed, but yeah. I think they'd be fine with the disc. It's right. really that front wheel. Right. Like, and here, the, the point that that leads up to is, if you look at a bike from the side, and this is going to get engineering, but bear with me for a second. <laughs> it wasn't before? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, people like that. They like yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So if you think of, I, so let's start with center of mass. So the center of mass is basically where your the center of, of your entire, whatever you're weighing, comes to a point. So for a human body, it's around your belly button, right? Um, so on a bike, if you look at wind hitting a bike from the side, there is a center of pressure. So if you take all of the force of wind hitting a bike from the side, and you had to pick one pinpoint where that was effectively pushing on the bike, that's called your center of pressure. 
Now, if you have a really deep rear wheel and a shallow front wheel, you have more surface area at the back half of the bike. So what that does is it moves your center of pressure towards the back of the bike and away from your front wheel, which is the wheel that causes the a lot of the scary pucker feeling. So it could actually help to have yes. more surface area mm -hmm. in the back. So the deeper your rear wheel is, the more your center of pressure moves backwards, which increases your stability. So if Iron Man really wanted to make a change to make things more safer, let's say, because yep. that's the intent with no disc wheels, right? Sure. To make things more safe. Should they be instead limiting the depth of the front wheel? Yeah, they could have a ratio, I guess. You know, okay. I, I we don't know exactly the number of how much does if you go from a sixty sixty to a sixty ninety, how much does that improve your stability? That's super hard to measure. So I don't have an exact term, um, but I definitely know you would not want to go with a training wheel on the back and a ninety on the front. That would be like a bang, could be yeah. really bad. bad. Mix. Yeah. And there are different types of crosswind. So if you the study that we did. Um, Actually, let me just kind of just talk about what, how we studied sure. design. Yeah. We're talking about a lot, so let's just go over this. So, we we spoke earlier about how we collected all these data points, uh, and in those data points, we we looked at the the yaw angle, which I said earlier was the direction that the wind hits you. Our first wheels were designed on the concept that you spend eighty percent of your time between ten and twenty degrees of yaw, and the other twenty percent is spent who knows where. Um, what we realized though is that 80% of your time is actually spent between 0 and 10 degrees, and about 50% of your time is spent between 1 and 5. So it's very front-loaded. Hmm. Um, knowing that, we are now able to say, okay, how do we design a wheel to be fast in that area? So fast for the majority of the time. Because yeah. that, that's that's something that, like... Yeah. It's like it's like buying a gigantic like motorhome for the one vacation you'll have each yeah. year, right? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah exactly. Like, why would you do that? Yeah. Right? Design exactly. it for the majority of the exactly. time. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Cool. So, and and this is exactly why we we said earlier that we wanted to understand what was actually happening on the road because if we knew that, then we could design a product that was fast for pretty much everybody. The other thing that we realized was that really no matter what the relative velocity was, yes, as you go faster, you do make those yaw angles a little shallower, a little lower, but it's not by what we originally thought. We felt like if you were, you know, over 20 some miles an hour, you should be on a front 90 because it's, no, it really, it doesn't matter that much at all. Um, one of the things that we did after that was we, we took all of this data and instead of actually us going out and drafting rim shapes and looking specifically and guessing, we created a, an optimization algorithm and a parameter set, which we put into a CFD package, and then <laughs> that was a lot of that yeah. was a lot of terms, right? Yeah, there. yeah. So let me explain what yeah. that means. So yeah. we used our old wheel shapes, the first version, as a baseline. Now the optimization algorithm is smart. So what it does is it says, "Hey, I'm going to draft a shape by myself, and I'm going to then compare that." to the, the baseline wheel. Okay. If the baseline wheel is faster, then I'll scrap this one I just drafted and I'll draft a new one. Well, it does that until it basically finds one that's faster. And then that becomes the new baseline. Hmm. So what you can do with that, because you can't basically write an equation for something that's fast, is you iterate over hundreds of rim shapes until this thing basically solves and can't find something faster. And it does it actually pretty quickly. Sounds like machine learning. It wow. is machine learning. Quickly is... 
relative terms. Well, and here's and it quickly <laughs> is relative because let's let's think about how this works. So our first wheels were designed in computational fluid dynamic software on a computer that had a single core processor, which at the time was pretty quick. It took 28 days running 24/7 to compute two different rim shapes. Oh wow! Comparing two different rim shapes for two different models, so a very long time. The newest wheels that we have produced, if we use that same computer, it would have taken four and a half years on that same computer to compute the, the data that we that we did. So that the amount of computer processing that's been done on this new design is through the roof. So we actually used a supercomputer, which was a 32-core cluster that sits in a, a data farm up in um, Detroit, which is where the computational fluid dynamics company we use. They have this, this massive supercomputer. So it ran for 1,000 hours, basically almost, uh, what is that, 1,000 hours? Is well, it took two or three months. To yeah, run two it. or three months to run it. And it solved all these, these different shapes down. Um, so, and they've all been designed to be fast in a specific area that, that is beneficial to the user. So getting back to the side wind concept, we know that the wheels are stable uh, in most riding conditions. However, there are certain conditions that you can't really, you don't really design for. So if you are riding somewhere and let's say you're riding on a freeway and there is a, like a sound wall and then there's a gap in that sound wall, sometimes wind will come straight out from that sidewall. We had that yeah. today. Corridors. Yeah. Yeah. And got hit with some hard winds. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and that is something that you see very commonly here in, in Kona, in Javi, is that you get these corridors, and I don't care what you're on. Those are scary. Yeah. And I believe that is the largest reason why a disc is outlawed, because you're not really looking at anything that's twisting the front wheel or doing anything like that. It just becomes, you're a kite. Yeah. Right. Yep. And the deep section on the rear, it literally pushes you. you I mean, you, you're riding behind somebody. You'll see them move two or three feet. Yeah. So that's why I believe they're outlawed here. Okay, that makes sense. I, I've got a quick question on rim profiles or different types of rims and how that could affect things. So today, uh, so Chad is on a bike with disc wheels, right? So there's no brake track. Uh, basic disc brake wheels. Disc brake wheels. Yeah. Yes, I should clarify. Good call. Um, so he's on disc brake wheels. There's no brake track because he doesn't have a rim brake. He has disc brakes yep. in a totally different location. So his his rim looks a lot more like just a, a standard U than mine did on my road bike, which has a rim, a rim brake, right? Not disc brake. So it's got a brake track around the top. It's basically got a flat area. Then it kind of bulges out a bit. Uh, I've got some, I've got zip 30 wheels on there. So just yep. aluminum, they're, they're so heavy, but they, those things come down. It kind of bulges out a bit. I was in Chad's shadow in terms of the wind, right? Cause I was right next to him. He was taking more of the wind and I was getting blown just the same, if not more than Chad. <laughs> and I was wondering if you guys knew that a smoother rim shape from the side like that without a brake track, would that somehow help with crosswinds? Or is this just because I was less strong than Chad? <laughs> you be your, uh, I'm going to go with that. You're lighter too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You, you are lighter. What's the weight difference between you guys? Uh, 145 right now. To 175. Yeah. So that's a component. Um, again, aerodynamics is a bit of a mystery a lot of times. We go to the wind tunnel, we study some things, <laughs> and you look at it, and you just think, there's no way that made that much of a difference. Yeah. Um, so it's hard to say. Like, how deep are your wheels? Oh, they're they're, they're like 30s. So yeah. yeah. They're, oh, they're, they're about 30s. 30. 30. So yeah, yeah. I mean, it, yes, it could. It that could be a part of it. But I would look at your in that case, if it's that gust, your overall area 
based or versus your weight is gotcha. probably a bigger component of that. But it, again, it's hard to say exactly. We do know this. We're talking about like brick track and rim shape. Um, we have two different models. One is an aluminum carbon model. So there's a aluminum rim, which is the structure. And then there's a carbon fiber fairing, which is basically a non-structural piece of carbon that the spokes pass through. When you bond carbon and aluminum, um, it's not perfectly flat. And there's sort of this, the way our rims are designed is there's a very small 0.5 millimeter gap that the carbon fiber sits under. So there's a, there's a, a basically a step in an aluminum up to the brake track of 0.5 millimeters. We always wondered what that would do if you compared it to like another wheel that had a smooth brake track. And our first version of wheels did not have a carbon clincher line. Well, this time around, we designed a full carbon clincher line and they're the exact same rim shapes with the exception of that 0.5 millimeter jump. Well, apparently it makes a difference because every one of our carbon clincher rims is faster than the aluminum version. And the only thing that makes any sense, and there are some other differences, I'm not saying that spokes come through at different places, but I really believe that it's that, that jump in the brake track because you're really trying to control air as it comes off the tire, goes around the tire, and you want it to attach to the rim as long as possible. And, and I think that that area changes Just it. One little step. What, yeah. One little step. And it, the only wheel that, and we get this question a million times, so I'm just going to say it here because it's, it's a good question. But our carbon clincher disc and our aluminum disc, if you look at them, the carbon clincher disc is a little bit slower. So everyone always says, well, why is that one slower than if the other ones are all faster? Well, when you make a carbon clincher disc, you actually make it in two pieces. So the construction method is the exact same as the aluminum one. There's that little that, that little ledge. So then they say, okay, well, if it's the same construction method, well, why is the carbon one faster? Every wheel that you test is gonna be a little bit different than every other wheel. The, mm -hmm. the, they come out of the mold differences, the tolerances are slightly different. Um, so I think that the answer is, is if we tested 10 of each and you average them, they'd be pretty much identical. So I, we, we basically say that our two disc wheels are the same speed. Let's move on to the thing that everyone cares about the most is the weight, right? They, <laughs> what people do, a mm -hmm. lot of times I think how people, for many years, they just look at the claimed weight on the website, they buy yeah. the lightest, they move forward. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, and a lot of times it won't be that many grams. Actually, we were just talking about it today for cross wheels. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, trying to decide which, which kind of fancy cross wheel should we get. So how much, so we talked about these other things, how much does weight play into it? And how much does it a type of riding if you're a crit racer versus a tri like triathlete, you're not spinning up those wheels a lot, right? They're yep. just rolling. Crit racer, mm -hmm. you might be going You're accelerating out, them constantly. Or mountain biking. Yep, or, or cross racing. And how important, this is a multi-part question, yes. how important then is like, so if it's 100 grams or something, should I be buying still towards the aerodynamics and the rim shape yep. rather than just trying to save 100 grams? Yep. All right. It's a great question. And we get this all the time. Yes, I got two. Two yeah. questions. <laughs> no roll. more. Just two of them. <laughs> yeah. No more than that. Done for the yeah. year, guys. You're done yeah. for the year. <laughs> so I think one of the first things that people see with weight is they see the number, right? So 100 is a big number relatively and they think well 100 grams is a huge amount of weight so it's got to be a quarter of a pound yes so but really it's a quarter of a pound and a good thing i like to use is an empty water bottle that you put on your bike is somewhere between 80 and 100 grams so would you go if you go on a bike ride you're going to fill that with water and it becomes if it's a, a liter or half a liter you're adding 500 grams there right to for half a liter so 
the number 100 or 80, whatever it is, is really not that big. If you're a 100K rider, which is a big rider, you weigh 100,000 grams. So the difference between that and 100, it's super small, mm-hmm. right? So we did a few studies, of course, because we always do studies. <laughs> um, we looked at comparing weight versus aerodynamics because our first line of wheels were heavier. Our new line is lighter, as light as or lighter than the competition, which it, you know, we've got it all now. But if you look at, we had, we created a hypothetically light set of wheels. Uh, I think it was about 1100 grams and we modeled it off of a Mavic Open Pro, which is the Aero Pig. So this is like only weight uh, with really no aero benefit. And then we compared that to a a series of our wheels, but I'll use the best case. So we had our, if you will, our heaviest set, which was a 90 on the front and a disc on the back, but also at the time it was our most aero set. So what we did, we used uh, Ryan Cooper from Best Bike Split, who's the math genius that most people in this industry know about. The guy's got the best models in the industry. He's awesome. Um, So we gave the data to him and said, you run it because, you know, we're the ones who are creating this create the data, tell us what we get back. So we ran those two, those several wheels over a series of Ironman courses, and then we tried to make our wheels lose. We wanted to see what it would take to make our wheels lose the aero versus weight game. game. So if you take, um, we started with Ironman Florida, flat. A, the aero, our heavy but aero wheel sets, save you close to nine minutes on that course. Now, Compared you, to the aero pick. No, compared to um, a standard Mavic Open Pro, that's... The Aeropig. Yeah, the Aeropig. Yeah. Now, if you take the lightweight, hypothetically lightweight Aeropig, which was close to... No, not Aeropig, just... It was lightweight. No, it was the lightweight pig. No, it was... Pig, yeah. So then we made the Aeropig, like, theoretically, or or hypothetically light, because it was close to two pounds, I think, difference in wheel weight. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So... How much does that save you? And over Ironman Florida, it saved you two seconds. So two pounds and close to two pounds in wheel weight was two seconds versus nearly nine minutes in aerodynamics. And that's because it's a flat course, no accelerations. So then you go to different courses. You say, okay, well, what about Coeur d'Alene or Lake Placid or these ones that are kind of rolling hills, right? Mm -hmm. And even there, the, the difference in time was minutes better for aerodynamics, even though you were heavier. The only place we could make it lose was on the tour, the climb of the tour, the Alpe d'Huez. So if you're basically climbing, I think it's 3,000 feet straight up over nine-ish miles. It's, yeah, it's 9.2, I think, something yeah. like that. Yeah, yep. Then Not we long. lost by a few seconds. Like three seconds. Yeah, or maybe wow. it was a little bit more than that, but we lost by a handful of seconds. But if there was any course before or after that, which was flatter, you basically won again. So unless you're climbing, and no course in triathlon has anywhere near that climb. I think the worst course Savage. is Savage Man, and we still won there. So but it's now, still, it's against a, a bad aerodynamic wheel. Yeah. I think there's that guy on Slow Twitch uh, who goes, aero and light is right. Right. So right. now we are aero and light because yeah. we have a carbon culture yeah. line. Right. So <laughs> it's, um, and we actually studied that years ago. Uh, but it's, so the point though is if you're, sorry, I'm interrupting you, but if, yep. you're, if you're close on weight, go on the... Always for aero. For, yeah. for triathlon, but what about for like um, crit riding yep. or so road racing? That's a great... So this we'll is think, your yeah. third good question. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Tom and Alt did a study on that, and I always reference this because he did such a great job. So he, he raced crits, and if you look at 
he did, I think his study was close to 400 grams different on rim weight in accelerating in crits. So if you look at the difference between aerodynamic, he took everything into consideration, but we'll use aerodynamics and weight in accelerating. The forces required to overcome the difference in weight versus aerodynamics was nearly 50 to 1 in favor of aerodynamics. Wow. So it even t- on a crit? Even in a crit, in, in wow. your acceleration. Do you think mountain biking would be the same way? Yep. Yeah. yeah interesting. Yeah, but then again, you know you're in a slower speed. And you also have tires that so are we'll knobby. So we'll talk to Ryan about this. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. So we're we're going to interview the best bike split, Ryan uh, yep. Cooper, too. That's so interesting. Hmm. Yeah, really interesting stuff. Because, yeah. and here's the deal. I think that now, now I wonder because I've put on a set of the first set of like actual wheels that I got. They were Easton Ascent Twos. They were used, and I got them purely because it said it was like a, it was like two th- or twelve hundred grams, right? Yeah. Light wheels. I was like, I am going to be so fast. Watch out, Strava. Back in the day when I first started, and they <clears throat> I, they felt fast. That's what it is. And that's the thing. There's like this feeling, and I wonder how much of that is psychological. Want, that's exactly what I was thinking. Is <laughs> yeah. you put on light wheels, and they go, they feel quicker, and you're like, I'm going to go so fast. And that's why people do light wheels. But the, the science part of it, yeah. the physics, backs up <laughs> aero benefit. There's a there's a number. I'm trying to remember the exact number, and don't quote me on this number. But when Silka was doing their um, their study on tire pressure and how that affected the basically the compliance of a frame so somebody's on a let's say a Roubaix which is supposed to be a soft comfortable riding bike and then you put them on a you know like a Super 6 Evo high mod which is supposed to be a stiff bike and it is and it is yep got one I think the difference in the stiffness of those frames is less than what the human can actually perceive as Mm. different and I think that perception number is like 10% 10% difference or whatever it is. But when they're told they're on a soft bike. But what your brain tells you is that, oh, this is so much softer. This is so much more compliant. More compliant. Soft, yeah. yeah. The same thing happens. We actually talked about this the other night. We were out at a, the group of us were talking and the question came up with how many spokes should I put in my wheel? And we get that question all the time because we have two wheel builds. We have a Clydesdale build and we have a standard build. So there's guys that are sort of on the on the on the edge. Our our standard build wheel is rated up to 198 pounds. Well, the reason we have a a higher rated wheel is because not just because we're worried about a wheel breaking. I mean, wheels don't really. A lot of people think that if they go over five pounds, their wheel's going to catastrophically explode. That doesn't happen. It just yeah. wears a little slower. But the main reason that we do it is because it's built better for somebody. And one of the main things you look at is you look at power transfer, right? If you're a big, strong guy and you start putting a lot of watts into a wheel, you're going to overflex it. As you start overflexing a wheel, you're losing power transfer. Oh yes, a wheel is supposed to flex. If you look at a wheel that's been engaged at a very slow high-speed camera, you see the hub start to move first, the spokes pick up, and it's, it's actually really neat to watch. But um, so that's the that's the one thing that we want people to do is we want to size the wheel specifically for them. So if you ever are on the limit and there's a company that's actually building a wheel that's that's there, size up. It makes sense. The only thing that you're going to gain is maybe thirty to forty grams, which we just if, proved with almost two pounds does nothing. nothing. Right, which right. absolutely means nothing from a weight perspective, and there's no way in in any way possible that you would ever notice thirty to forty grams. It's way below the human perception. But what you look at is you, you'll get more power transfer. I think a lot of people, too, would argue, well, in a road race, the, the gaps happen on the big climbs. Yep. But still, it's 
just go get a DEXA scan. Feel bad about yourself. <laughs> Lose <laughs> some body it. weight. Pour out your water well, bottle. That's, that's, yeah, pour out your yeah. water bottle, right? Yeah. Before yeah. the climb, it would be way the, more weight than that. Here's the thing, too. We design and manufacture engineering, or uh, all these products <laughs> that are super aero, and we do all this stuff, but I was an athlete for years. You guys are athletes. And every presentation that we start, you know, talk that we do, I start off by saying, the biggest component of all of this is riding your bike and training, and that's what Trainer Road comes in. I mean, you guys are these training nice pros. Yeah, that's no, good. I'm just, I'm just I keep use, going, keep going. I use yeah. the product; it matters. I mean, if I'm not riding my bike, my FTP goes down. If yeah. I start following a training program, it goes up. And guess what? I'm not going to get dropped on a climb, right? Yeah. It, I can sell. You can have the bet. You can go ride Jan Ferdino's bike. I mean. Good chance he's going to win again this year. Yeah. You put me on Jan's bike, I'm not winning the race. I'm not going to have the best bike splitter. Yeah. You know, it's just not going to happen. Um, so, I'm not, I'm talking about the flex of the wheel, uh, we just did a cross race. We have new wheels or DT. What are they? DT, DT Swiss seven four ones. No four seventies. Four seventies. I think so. Yeah, I think so. They're they're stock. They're just the the OEM wheels that come on a specialized Crux Expert, uh, Expert X one. Yeah. So, anyways, so you can look those up there. Ride it hard, and when Jonathan, I, I, I've been here in Kona. I'm like, there's, I hear this ting when I turn on my wheels, and what happened is I'm, I'm such a aggressive cross rider <laughs> that I, that's, that's his word for it. Yeah. I, I bulged like some of the spokes out, like they actually. It, now it isn't like visibly noticeable when you look at the wheel until you spin it. We looked at we spun the wheel, and you, this has a brake caliper, so it has a very close point of reference, right? And we you can see the spokes in one area; they're bowed out quite a lot. Mm -hmm. um, they weren't like that before, um, and. I'm not sure if it's because you are such an aggressive cross rider, a lack of grace, but we can we can cover that at another point. But yeah, well, how? Did no, that so no. But I want to say my point is is today's ride where we went 56 or 60 miles or something. Uh, when I, when I'm in the saddle riding, I don't hear any sound. But as soon as I get out of the saddle, yep. it starts to ting and it hits it because yep. I have more uh, force there and it's hitting and it's scares me so i was like in the saddle the whole time most people or, don't realize their wheels flexing like that by the exactly. way exactly no, even yeah. if i just turn to the parking lot like three miles per hour i take i turn to the left it flexes enough to start hitting yep so it's it's really close but that's just amazing the amount of flex that i that i get and that's that people get that um you can get you don't it's handling is worse on a flexi wheel, right? Rather than a yeah. stiff wheel. It to is. a certain extent, right? Because if you had a perfectly rigid wheel, would it you not know, be you don't, well, you, you don't, don't want, want <laughs> Right, yeah, you I've don't want that. some really, like, old school things that people will do. Like, people actually, where, you know, when you build a wheel, a lot of times you have a cr crosses and spokes. Mm -hmm. And guys would, like, wrap wire around them and, like, solder them. So yeah. That and I'm like, man, that, that. I, I heard that. I'm like, that's, you don't want to make a wheel dead. It's like if you look at anything in engineering, like if you look at a bridge, right? Bridges move a lot. Airplane wings. Yes, oh, they, oh, they, they move a lot. Yeah, yeah. They <laughs> should move. These are yeah. these are not static things. They're dynamic things, and they're designed to move. They're designed to do good things when they move. And it's important to have, this is why we have different wheel builds, because they should be built around you. What happens when you get into an OE wheel, like what you guys have, and this is nothing against DT Swiss, because they make great products, but right. they also make OE products. Now, an OE product is, number one... Original equipment. But yes. Yeah. OE means original equipment, which we put it on a bike, the chips. And one of the number one priorities with those wheels is that they are cheap, mm -hmm. right? Because they are trying to get the bike out and make it as reasonably priced as possible so they strip the components down on those a lot 
The other thing that you have to consider is, well, who are we building it for? Well, they're not going to oversize it. They're not going to put like 36 spokes in each one because, well, that's just adding to the cost. Mm -hmm. So they build a wheel that they can, will work and, but at the same time, it's not specifically built around people. And when you lower the, the, the component spec, like if you look at a low quality spoke versus a high quality spoke, there is a massive difference in that. Not only from it keeping the wheel true, but just from the stiffness factor and all these different things come in, come into play. What are a good, uh, what's a, what's a good spoke? We use Sapham CX rays. They are unbelievably aerodynamic, and there's we've studied round spokes versus these. It makes a significant difference. Um, they're also made with a very very good material. They're super durable. We've got we've got probably close to twenty thousand wheels that are on the road. So if you think you know twenty spokes per wheel, that's like almost half a million spokes. Twenty to twenty four spokes. Lot. We, I mean, I could probably count on two hands the number of people that said, hey, I broke a spoke. Yeah, and just from riding. Just from riding. And, and that, and most of the times you hear people breaking a spoke, they drop a chain, right? And it goes and in it behind the set and it just... And they keep pedaling. Yeah, it rips apart. Which, by the way, those those rims were used by Aaron, or are used by Aaron Gwynn, I believe. Yeah. And he's the downhill world champ. That I mean, nobody puts... a wheel through more beating than that exactly and he uses those and so. one of the one of the things we did we actually use a the only wheel that we do not use a sapham cx ray on is our disc wheel hmm. and one of the reasons for that is because well it's not in the wind so well why why put it in there they're, they're a lot more expensive just because of the way that they're manufactured but what we've learned is that even though it's still a great spoke and we break very very few of them if i were to look at the number of spokes that on the two hands that i could count that have broken a lot of them would be lasers compared to the CX rays, which is the spoke that we use in the disc. Um, so while it's still a great spoke and very few break, that CX ray is just a phenomenal spoke. And one of the things we did with our new disc wheel is we designed a hub that allows you to replace a spoke if you break one now. So it's a because before if, if you broke one, You're the done. wheel's toast. I mean you can't you can't get in there. So the the new stuff is is actually designed to be really serviceable and, and, and good. So I'm going to put you guys on the spot. Yeah. Okay. So you do not make a disc brake wheel. Oh, uh, we don't, but we are, it's probably in about a month or two, you'll have one available. Oh, okay. Maybe yeah. this will ruin my question then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was gotcha. going to ask you what I should uh, buy. Maybe I should just wait. Yeah. You, yeah, you definitely okay. could. So no, we have a, we're working on, basically we have a builder in the U.S. that we're going to partner with. Um, right now, everything is manufactured in four factories overseas. We have a central build location in Taiwan, um, all hand built. Those guys have been doing this for years. They're the is, best carbon comes out of Taiwan. Yeah, the best. Um, up to ninety-five percent of all the carbon fiber in the industry comes out of Taiwan. There's a big difference between Taiwan and China, and people don't get that. But when you're in the industry, like you, you pretty much got to be in My Taiwan. My specialized bike says made in Taiwan or made in I Taiwan know the or factory. assembled in Taiwan. Yeah, yeah. They, yeah. So, and it's a good factory. Um, but long story short, we're, we've partnered with a guy in the U.S. to build. He's a really great builder because we have such a low request for that stuff right now. Track. When you're talking about builder, just to be clear, you're not talking about laying up the carbon from nope. the wheels. Nope. You're talking about assembling, lacing the hub. The to hub the spokes into a rim. So we'll we'll send him a stock of rims, uh, track hubs, uh, disc brake hubs, and spokes. 
And when we get those orders, we'll send them to him. He'll build, hand build the wheel there and then ship to the customer. So, so what kind of rim would I, like a 30, a 30 carbon clincher? Uh, we do not cross? have a 30 carbon clincher. We oh, only have the aluminum version of that. Mm. Um, so for cross right now, it's probably our best option. We will have, you can do all the carbon stuff as well. Um, we're, the specs on that though, we're just finalizing before we can kind of make recommendations. And your wheel builder, the one thing that you can say about building wheels is you gotta have a good wheel builder. We can sell rims and parts all day, but if the guy lacing it together, I don't know if you guys have ever built a wheel, but I know it's a mess. It's, it's, it's crazy. At least it was a mess when I tried we, it. So yeah, we started yeah. this company and our original thought was we'll build them all in our garage. And then I bought a book and read the whole thing and tried to build a wheel. And it took me like four hours. And I said, I'm never doing this yeah. again. <laughs> so we hired, we hired the best guys in the industry to do it. And um, the guys that we're partnering with are arguably the best in the, in the U.S. at doing it. And um, they'll do it right. So one thing that I see with a, and we'll, we'll wrap this one up quick. Um, but one thing that I see is a lot of cyclocross riders. Uh, I don't know what wheel I should get. So a lot of guys, for example, are running. They like they're they're sponsored by Zip, right, or SRAM. Yep. And they're running 303s or 404s. So they're running deep section wheels on, on a cross bike, and and their average speed on a lot of those courses is pretty low, right? So they may not be gaining, you know, quite the aerodynamic advantage. Is it? Is a deeper section wheel? And I guess let's just speak from your perspective. So, is it more torsionally rigid because there's more uh, more material in the shape or to create the rim, or is that not necessarily the case? Because they, if you look at it, it, looks like a more broad, thick, burly structure. But Cheers. so, so there's a few things that you start looking at when you look at a wheel. There's the 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 angle that the spokes actually take to connect to the rim. So. If you look at the hub itself, a, a standard hub spacing on a rear wheel is, is, I think for cross, is 135. It's now 142. Yeah, yeah so, and, and this is, yep. yeah, we're, we're looking at this stuff, and it's like there's a million different things for... So it's, many standards. Not like it's fun. Yeah, yeah it's fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But basically, one of the things you do is you look at the hub flange, so how far that is from the center of the hub, and then you, you basically have a connection point up at the top where it connects to the rim. So the deeper that rim is, the steeper that angle is, so mm -hmm. and so it, it basically makes a wheel that is, it's it doesn't have as much stiffness because you you you've got your your hinge point is 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 different. Mm. Um, the other thing that you run into is when you look at a rim that's deep, especially a carbon clincher rim where the spokes connect to the bottom, you have uh, basically a leaf spring that occurs from where the spokes connect up to the top where the tire connects. So where the the spokes connect, there's a very sort of it's not thick, but it's a, a, a reinforced area so that you can connect the spoke. And then the carbon fiber that goes from that area up to the brake track is super thin wall carbon fiber. So that's why the deeper the rim is, typically it feels softer or more compliant because that, as you ride, that thin wall compresses like a spring. Um, so it does not necessarily mean that your rim is going to be stiffer because it's deeper. It really depends on the layup. It depends on how they've they've made it the thickness of it we try to make the wheels evenly stiff we don't want mm -hmm. a front wheel or a shallow wheel it's different and we've we've studied the um the stiffness of our wheels both horizontally and you know radially and they're all pretty much the same so it doesn't really change much in, as you get into a deeper wheel interesting 
Cool. Well, thank you guys. We went hey. deep. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks. We went you guys so are deep. super smart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel like this is probably the deepest dive that we've done on the yeah, podcast. Yeah, we, we have Ryan Cooper, Ibley. Yeah. Oh, so Ryan's next. Away. Yeah. We're <laughs> yeah. Um, so thanks for joining us, guys. Uh, for uh, To find out more about Flow Cycling, they can go to flowcycling.com. Yeah, F-L-O cycling.com. And there's a, that's where your blog is, too, with this data. Blog's it. Blog, store, link, uh, all Lots of our of stuff's there. Yeah. On there. Um, Sweet, guys. Well, thanks. Enjoy. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks for having us, guys. We appreciate it. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye.